0: Welcome to Waymaker Church Podcast. The heart of the house is that these messages would help you to encounter, live for, and advance the kingdom of God. Enjoy this week's message. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open to the book of Matthew chapter 25. And uh, man, can y'all believe it? This is crazy. So we uh, next week is the last week in our sermon series on the parables of Jesus. Uh, kind of crazy that we've been in, in these parables for about the last three months, and, uh, and so today, we're looking at uh, the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, and, uh, and then uh, next week, we're going to be looking at the parable of revealed light as we wrap up the series. Uh, but uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of good things. I hope that this series has been helpful to you. I hope that it's uh, brought some revelation into your life uh, to be able to understand the kingdom of God better. You know, as a, as a pastor, one of my greatest desires, so Matthew chapter 25, again, if you turn there, you can hold your place there. Uh, one of my greatest desires is for us to gain revelation knowledge of the kingdom of God, uh, to understand the word, to understand what Jesus was saying. What did he mean to us? Uh, because if we can get a hold of the word of God, it will change our life. And, uh, and so uh, it's, just, uh, it's just something that's been a blessing to me to study, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. Uh, how many of you guys enjoyed uh, the message last week from Pastor Josh? Man, so good. So good. Um, just that, those three things, Jesus calling us to be persistent humble and obedient and uh, man it was so good there were eight things that he shared that believers are called to as well and you'll see him up here on the screen if you missed it last week I, during this part I was sitting back in the back and and uh, they threw the slide up I saw cell phones shooting out so we could capture a picture of it uh, but there was eight things that uh, he said that believers are called to and the first is to read the word to he- the second is to hear the word the third is to study the word the fourth is to meditate on the word the fifth is to remember the word. Uh, the sixth is to learn the word. The seventh is to preach the word. And most important of all, number eight, was to obey the word. And, uh, man, I love, I love that. You can snap a picture if you'd like to. Uh, those things right there, if you'll get a hold of that, will absolutely completely change your life, without question. I, I have no hesitation in my heart to say that uh, because the, the power of the word of God is, is unparalleled. You have to remember that it's simply by his word that God spoke in everything that you know has come into existence. Just by the power of God's word, what he, uh, what he does in simplicity to say light be and light shows up. He commanded the dry land to appear. Everything that you and I know simply came about by the power of his word and it's amazing. Now, here's one of the things from his message last week that stuck out to me, uh, and I wanted just to, to touch on it briefly before we jump into the text in Matthew, but one of the key verses that he used last week was Luke chapter 6, verse 46, and Jesus said this, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? And so I was sitting back here in the back, and, and I was just thinking about that, and just that, that question just kept going in my heart this week, and I'm like, man, I'm like, Lord, help me to understand fully what that means. And, uh, and so as I was studying, the Lord brought my attention to something in that verse that stuck out to me, and, and it was in his statement, he said, but why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now that statement in itself has a greater significance than you might think. So as I went back to look it up, one of the things that I knew that it was true for a statement, if you were to see something like, especially in the King James, you would see this, or in the New King James, uh, if, if in the King James you would hear what Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Anybody remember that kind of stuff, that old, I said unto thee? It feels very pious. It's awesome. But if you'll see it, like in the New King James, he'll say, like, like basically, like, truly, I tell you the truth. What's intriguing about this, if you ever see something in the scripture like that and it's repetitive, it's a double use of that word, you want to pay special attention to that. Because like in a statement where Jesus put that on the front end and he's saying, verily, verily, I say unto thee, what that actually means is he's not talking as one who just has a, an understanding or has heard about something. What he's actually telling you by saying verily, verily, is that the thought originated with him. Whenever somebody would make a statement during this time saying verily, verily, what that actually meant was that they they were the originator of the thought. They were actually the root from which it came. So when Jesus is saying like, hey, I'm not telling you about a truth, he says, what I'm telling you is the truth because I'm the one who it originated with. Kind of a cool thing. Now, in this particular part, you see a double usage of the word Lord on the backside of of this particular passage. And what's interesting is when it comes to a name, I just felt like sharing this with you. When it comes to the repetition of a name, the repetition of that name is used for emphasis in the scripture. And so when you repeat a name, what it implies is intimacy with the person. And I'm not talking about just physical intimacy, but the repetition of a name, it speaks of an intimate knowledge of that person, who they are, about their heart, all those types of things. And so what's interesting is when Jesus makes the statement, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do the things that I say, what he's saying is, is why are you claiming to know me intimately and yet you don't walk out what I've already said? Isn't that interesting? Interesting. And how many times can we read stuff like that? If we just breeze right over the top of it, and we're like, hey, that's cool, man. Yeah. And, uh, and we can think about, or oh, we can have that thought like, man, I'm glad that's not me. But it's intriguing to me because I saw that because here's the thing. The word for lordship there in the Greek is actually, it's the Greek word uh, kurios. And it comes from the root word kuros, which means supremacy. That's interesting. Right? So that word, when he's saying Lord or master, and that's, the, that's what the curios actually translate to the word Lord or master. But the root word of that one is supremacy, right? It's talking about uh, one who is, uh, who is supreme overall because the contextual usage of that word, right? I'm getting into etymology a little bit, the study of words, uh, which I like, which I don't normally do, but I, I like that. It was a fancy word, right? That was like a $23 word on a Sunday. Come on, somebody. Hey, come on now. All that study wasn't for nothing. But here's the thing, the contextual usage of this word inside of that particular passage of scripture, that when it talks about the, the, the word Lord, it is he to whom a person or thing belongs, right? So throughout the throughout the uh, parables so far, right, we've been talking about the lordship or the mastery of Jesus, right? Uh, throughout all these different parables, you constantly see, right, that he is the owner of the vineyard, right? He's uh, You see the, the different ways it talks about him. He's the owner, he's the boss, he's the master, he's the Lord, uh, he's the businessman or whatever it is. But every single one of these parables shows that he is the person who's in control. And so the contextual usage of it is, is the when he says, Lord is a person to who, or, or to he to whom a person or thing belongs, listen, about which he has the power of deciding. He says it's the possessor and dispossessor of a thing, the owner, the one who has control, the master. And when it comes to a state, it would talk about the sovereign, the one who is in charge like a prince or chief or an emperor at that time. And it is a title of honor, expressive of respect and reverence, with which servants greet their master. And ultimately, it was a title given to God and Jesus the Messiah. It's interesting, is it not? And so when I was thinking about this, the simple statement where Jesus in Luke 6, 46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? It actually brings definition to the totality of the parables, right? Because Jesus came to reveal the Father and the nature of the kingdom of God. His inaugural message when he came was to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that reveals when he is saying, you need to turn and and turn away from sin, turn away from your own ways and turn to me, reveals the very essence of his lordship. And it's a powerful thing because he was and is the person to whom all things belong. Nothing has changed. He is the one that continues to have the power of deciding. And he is the master who has control of the person. And not only that, he's due the respect and the reverence of his servants because he is God and Messiah, the Savior of his people. Amen? And so what's interesting, again, when we look about the parables, that the entrusted leaders of God's house and the people were serving their own interest. Right? They were serving, uh, they were serving God by their own ideals. The, the clashing nature of the message of Jesus uh, is, is illustrated in the truth that they had elevated themselves, the people that were entrusted by the Lord, had actually elevated themselves to a faulty position in their minds. They, they profess to be one thing, and yet he's just going, no, 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 like I'm the guy. Right, Even when they arrested him, right, and, uh, and he's being questioned by Caiaphas, the high priest, and I remember that he responds to them, and they were asking him some questions, and he just responds plainly to them, and it says that one of the servant of the high priest struck him on the mouth, and he says, if I have spoken evil, bear witness to the evil. And I find it intriguing because in those moments, it is possible in our humanity to elevate ourselves above the very nature of God. These are the people that were supposed to know God to represent him, and yet these people were standing with an arrogance in their heart and a faulty sense in their mind that they were somehow more than the Savior who came. And it's a scary thing because the the parable that we're talking about today uh, is, is the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins. Now I'm going to get into that uh, more here in just a second, but but we have to be careful in, in our own lives. Again, I think it's just more of a warning from Scripture for us to be able to pay attention that at the end of the day, we don't allow our own understanding to trump the very nature of God. Because He is the owner. He's the Lord. Right? And so if I'm going to declare Him as Lord, I need to learn to gain the intimate knowledge of who He is. And I'm going to get ahead of myself. I'll talk about it again in the end. But in, in Exodus chapter, I believe it's 30, verse 3. i go to the end of my notes. Exodus 33:13. 13. What's interesting about this is Moses, here's the thing about how do we get intimate with God? A lot of times you're thinking like, that just sounds strange. But how do we gain intimacy with God? Moses actually made this statement in Exodus 33, verse 13. He says, now, therefore, I pray if I have found grace in your sight. He says, show me now your way. That I might know you. How do we have intimacy with God? When we learn his ways, we get to know him. And so, if we just learn religion, or if we just learn habits, if we just learn to kind of go through the motions. And do the Christian things, what I talked about a few weeks ago, is that we may miss him. We may miss the hour of our visitation. We may miss the opportunity to actually walk in relationship with him. And we can live the entirety of our life with the name label Christian and yet not actually be serving Christ. And so this morning, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit because the whole concept of, of, of Lord, Lord is, is dealing with, with this part of making just, it's just to make sure, look, I don't, I don't know all of your stories. I don't know where you're at in your walk with the Lord. And so if my face goes like, like this, it's just my face. Like I'm not mad at anybody today. Um, just know that in advance, I like the little precursor there. But here's the thing is I always believe it is so important in our life with Christ that we need to make sure that we take this word and allow this word to evaluate our life. Right? The scripture is a light into our path, right? It illuminates things. And maybe there's a dark room or a place where maybe the lordship of Christ is not out. We need the word of God to come in and put the spotlight on. Like that should be our desire. When we study the word, it not only reveals who he is, but it reveals who we are. And if there's an area of my life that doesn't line up with, with what he desires for me, I need to have him shine the light on that so I can make a change, repent, turn, and get on path with serving him. Amen. Because I don't know about you. I don't want to spend the entirety of my life professing the uh, professing the Lord Jesus Christ and then have an opportunity to stand before him someday and hear him say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't know you. Like I don't know about you. This is just my own heart. one I'm just talking with you guys. Some of this isn't in my notes. But here's the thing is, is, is my own desire is like I want to be found Faithful. I don't know about you, like I want to be found faithful. Like I want to be able to stand before him with confidence and not as self-confidence, but knowing that the finished work of Christ was active in, in my own life. I want to know that what Jesus has done was enough for me and that I can serve him faithfully just because I want to serve him faithfully because he's worthy of it. He's the owner. He's the master. He's the Lord to to the one that, that deserves all the stuff that we have, right? All the gifts, the talents that are in your life. He placed there. You're just giving back to him what belongs to him. Your worship belongs to him. You're just simply giving back to him what you do when you pray, when you trust, when you walk by faith. All of these things are him. Listen, the measure of faith in your life was placed there by him. And so if we think about like, hey, God, today, yes, I'll just, I'll give you some of my time. Listen, it's not even your time. Your days are numbered. He already numbered them. So your time, you're having an opportunity to give back to him. Your words, you have an opportunity to either use them to glorify Or to glorify yourself. Because it all belongs to him. He's the owner and he's the master. And so the whole idea of lordship is that if we're not mindful, we can become like the leaders in the days of Jesus that didn't even recognize him. And they were the ones that studied all the time. You ever thought about that? These are the ones that from as young men at the age of 13 were were brought into the, uh, the rabbinic school and they learned from teachers the law. They learned the practices. They learned the ways of the temple. All of those things were intended to be a reflection of him. The God that spoke from the mercy seat, the one that came down in the cloud and the pillar of fire that the tent of meeting, right? He is the one that that when they dedicated the temple with Solomon, that the glory of the Lord filled the house so strong that the priests of God were unable to stand to minister because of the glory of the Lord. It's the one who parted the sea. It's the one who made the, the ground that they walked across dry land. And yet when it finally came, it's the one who drove out their enemies in, in, in the promised land. It's the one who established them and fought for them and brought the victory. And yet, at the end of the day, this same God was the same one that they had forgotten. And somehow, in a measure of time, in in that space in between, that place in the waiting, as they're waiting for the Messiah, that place in between, they somehow got to a place where they didn't even recognize him when he showed up. It's crazy. And so, again, they had forgotten everything was the Lord's. They... They were to multiply and increase what was entrusted to them through good stewardship. But in the end, their stewardship would be brought into account. And, and we all, we've seen this in the parables so far, right? That good stewards would be rewarded, bad stewards given eternal punishment. In the parables of Jesus, right, they were course-correcting uh, course directives from the owner and master to the servant, so when you actually read these, what he would say, like especially in, uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 5, where it begins with the Beatitudes from 5 to 7, uh, chapter 7, you see this consistency of statements where he's saying, you say, but I say. You say, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. And there's this, this discourse that he continues to have as he's preaching at the Sermon on the Mount. And what he is saying is that, is that you're not saying what I'm saying. And then he makes statements like, verily, verily, I say unto you. And what he's telling them is he's like, hey, I'm telling you the truth, and that truth originates with me. And so if we're going to interpret what the truth is, we have to understand the origination of that truth. Amen? The truth is the word of God. Because God is not a man. It's Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent or change. Has he said it, and shall he not do it? Has he spoken it, and shall he not make it good? Listen, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he has said in his word, he will absolutely do. Amen? Amen. Amen. So today, as we look at the parable that we're in, I just, I want to share that with you. I thought that was a neat thing to study. A little passionate about that, obviously. But today's parable, we're also going to see the phrase, Lord, Lord, used by the bridegroom, right? So again, that's denoting intimacy with him. And so uh, the double use of that name. So go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 through 13. And here's the thing, too. I want you to see something. Thank you. Uh, I want you to see something. Before we read this, peek around. In, in, in your Bible, you should see paragraphs of things that should have headings over the top of them. I want you to look around at your Bible real quick and see where this parable is placed in Matthew chapter... Where it's obviously Matthew 25. But I want you to look around for just a second and observe where is it actually written at within the context of the Scripture around it. That's one of the things we talked about in studying the Word. In Matthew chapter 24, the, uh, the disciples asked Jesus, what are the signs of your coming? And in Matthew chapter 24, he begins to talk about those things. He begins to talk about the great tribulation. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, he's talking about the parable of the, of the fig tree. And this one, we're basically saying if you, when you see these things happening, based off of what he talked about, he's saying, listen, like the time is near. Understand the season. He talks about that no one knows the day or the hour. Then he goes to talk about the faithful and the evil servants. And right after all of those things, this parable is in the scripture. So they ask him about the signs of his coming, and he's talking about all the things that are going to come on the world and, 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 and the, 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 the different things that are going to be happening and the toughness of those things in the great tribulation. He's talking about his second coming and his return. And then Jesus follows up all of these things with the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. And this is simply what he says, in, in, starting in verse 1 of 25. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. It says, Now five of them were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who uh, sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, obviously, this parable gives reference to the end times and the second coming of Christ, right? This is a prophetic par- uh, parable as well. And remember in John chapter 14, verse 3, and, and I want to just, the Lord dropped this in my heart, I want to remind you that Jesus said in John 14, verse 3, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, he says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And I simply want to remind you of one of the joys of your salvation this morning, that if you have, have, have declared the name of Christ and you are living for him, there is going to come a day when he will return. And the hope of your belief, you will see. Amen? And here's the thing, what's interesting is Jesus being a master communicator uses the picture of an Eastern wedding to illustrate his second coming. In Eastern weddings, the bridegroom, and again, we have to get the the Western mindset out, right? Where, you know, we just pick some random location that looks pretty and, and, and all of that. He's using an Eastern wedding to be able to depict what it looks like because it's quite different from what we have. In Eastern weddings, the bridegroom goes to the home of the bride with gladness to bring the bride to his own home. From whenever there's an engagement, the space in between is he would actually go to that and prepare a place. He would prepare a room and a place for them to be able to come back to live uh, in that. And and what's interesting about it is the father. So you would have the bridegroom, right, that wants to get his bride. But it was actually the father that declared when they would actually go to get her and to bring her back. And so he uses that within an Eastern wedding to describe it. Most uh, marriages in the East took place at night, And the virgin bridesmaids accompanied the bride with torches or lamps, right, you would uh, expect with a lot of rejoicing. And so a key element of the illustration that Jesus uses is that they did not know when the bridegroom was coming, so they had to continually be ready. And so uh, something also imperative to note is the location. Uh, Again, I mentioned about the parable of the scripture. And context is key because as Jesus is using the explanation of the signs of his coming and the great tribulation, not knowing the day or the hour, it's followed again by the, by the parable of the talents after the wise and foolish virgins. But in all of these things, we have to realize that what he's trying to say is in the coming of the Son of Man, that we have to have wisdom in how we're living so that we're not like the foolish virgins that come up there that, that, that missed something in all of it. And he just says, look, apart from me, I don't know you. And that's what we're going to look at. So a few of the key elements that, that stand out uh, stood out to me when I read this First is obviously the virgins. Now, here's the thing about that. Virgins in Scripture represent purity. Those who have kept themselves from immoral defilements and corruption. So for a moment, when you hear the word virgin, if you can take the sexual aspect out of it in your mind and replace it with the understanding that that it simply means something that is pure. The, The specific number of 10 is of 10 virgins is something that's interesting as well because the number 10 is used in a symbolic sense. 10 in the scripture is the number of responsibility and accountability. 10 is also the number of law and order. And so these 10 virgins, what he's saying is that would they be held responsible before the bridegroom to be watching and waiting with their lamps burning brightly. And so of course in this Jesus conveys that there were five wise and five foolish. The third key element that stood out to me was the lamps. Lamps in scripture often represent the Holy Spirit. You can see that in Revelation 4, 5. It says that from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Lamps in scripture also represent at times the word of God, where he says, Psalms 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Lamps can also represent man's spirit. Proverbs 20, 27 says, the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord. Searching all the inner depths of his heart. And so in this particular parable, the lamp is speaking about the spirit of a man. Right? I want to remind you, you are a spirit. You have a soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And you live in a physical body. I've done enough funerals to know that your body will someday will die. And you'll be buried. But your spirit and your soul will live forever. You are an eternal being created in the image and the likeness of God. Amen? Amen? And so remember that today because as we're talking about this, he's dealing with the spirit of the man. He's dealing with that inward man, right? We all can learn behaviors and, and have the outward, uh, learn to do outward things that, that, that other people can look at and be like, oh, wow, they're doing really good. But the reality of all these things is, is who are we when we're at home? Who are we when nobody's looking? Because it's in those moments that I believe that the, the fullness of like who we are on the inside really actually begins to come to the forefront. Because I'm well aware that we can walk into a place and know how to say amen and uh-huh in all the right places, right? I, I can clap. I can cry. I can lift my hands. I can kneel at an altar. I can do all these different things. I can even serve in a ministry. I could give in the offering. But what is my heart actually like before the Lord? That's that's the the question of this message this morning, is what is actually on the inside of me that he sees? Now, I don't know that because I'm not the Lord and I'm certainly not the Holy Spirit and y'all should be thankful for both of those things. But what's interesting is, is so often, it's not just church attendance, it's not just doing religious things, what's actually on the inside of us? We need the word to be able to reveal that. Another key element, so we talked about the virgins, the specific number of 10, the lamps. But it also talks about the lamps, and it says, and oil vessels. Oil in the scripture is representative of the Holy Spirit. And so in this, you just you see the, the fact that he's talking about that he's saying that your light is intended to shine and you are to live ready. But in order to live ready, you've got to be filled with the oil of the Spirit. And so thankfully, in, in this particular parable, Jesus clarifies the difference between the wise and the foolish It just simply says the foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. The wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And so a key component of the condition of the lamps centers around the delay of the bridegroom. And this is something I want us to make sure that we get this morning. Because again, like many of the other parables, it says that the master or the owner went into a far country and his return was delayed. And so in this parable, it says that the bridegroom was delayed in his coming, right? There was an extended period of time that they didn't expect. And because of this delay, the result is it says that all of the virgins slumbered and slept. Now, and you have to understand something. In this particular waiting period, the spirit of slumber and sleep that fell on them, but it fell upon all of them. But this isn't just something about being tired. This was not a sleep of rest. It was actually a spirit of lethargy. That because he delayed in his coming, because it didn't seem like that maybe he was going to do what he said that he would do, because it didn't seem like that maybe he was actually going to come back, and that period of time allows doubt and unbelief to begin to subtly creep in. And, and, and in this, he, he turns around so, and he tells him it's, it's a spiritual drowsiness that comes along with an, an inattentiveness to watching the bridegroom. Right? So they were supposed to be, as, as, the, as the bride, they were supposed to be watching and waiting for the return of the bridegroom and to have their, their lamps ready, to have the oil in the lamp. But at the, at the end of this moment, they had slept and slumbered because he was delayed in his coming. And what's interesting is he says it's the midnight cry in, in this particular one when the call went out. And, and the midnight cry to me speaks of a time that would not be expected for a bridegroom to come. You wouldn't expect him to just show up in the middle of the night, right? But he says that it's at the midnight cry, it's a time that you wouldn't expect, had the potential to catch people off guard. And so when the cry went out from the bridegrooms, the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Now here's the thing trimming a lamp is kind of a foreign concept to us because we like walk in and hit light switches and lights come on. And so we're thinking, what does it actually mean to trim a lamp? The people of this time would have understood clearly. So in, in the priestly ministry, Aaron the high priest, uh, if you've seen the golden menorah, right? It's that seven, it's that seven uh, uh, candles on it. Uh, when he actually was responsible to go in and to trim the lamp daily. He actually was responsible to make sure to bring in oil both morning and evening. Now, when you put that in the context of what that is, he had to supply the oil, he had to trim the lamp to make sure that it was good, and it was the same also in the tabernacle of Moses. It was the same in the tabernacle or the, or the Temple of Solomon. But again, he had to give attention to it, special attention to it morning and night. And when you think about that kind of a picture, that a midnight cry goes out, they were just to arise and to trim the lamp. If they were not giving attention to what was on the lamp, if they weren't giving attention to the oil, if they weren't giving attention to, to do the things they needed to do, it makes sense that they wouldn't be ready. And when he talks about the fact of saying, hey, now you've got to go and you've got to buy it uh, from somebody else, it means that they didn't have any oil of their own. And there's a lot to this because Jesus says that five were ready. Their lamps were trimmed and they had taken plenty of oil. It said the other five had a lamp but no oil. And so the request to give us some of your oil by the foolish to me is telling because the parables have consistently pointed to the truth that all are individually accountable for their life with God. Right? Every one of us in this room, we are we are individually by ourselves accountable to the Lord at the end of our life. Right? Nobody else, none of us are going to stand there with each other and go, "Hey, no, but I know him. They did some good things." Like we're all just simply going to give account. And so the foolish asking for some of their oil speaks of a lack of personal relationship with God. right? They didn't have their own oil, and they were trying to get it from someone else. can Can I pause on that for a moment? I hope you see where I'm going there with that. Can I please, please, please encourage you this morning? Do not rely on the stories of somebody else. Do not rely on the encounter of somebody else. Please. You need to have your own oil. You need to know how to create your own oil. You need to know how to get to a place of encounter with him. Because if we're only waiting for the people on the platform or only waiting for a person that maybe has an anointing on their life to speak or to preach or whatever else, if that's what we're relying on, I'm telling you, you need your own oil. You need your own source of supply. Because the oil of the spirit in a person's life comes only from personal relationship. It is a result of their personal history with God. It's the careful investment and attention in the relationship that has produced revelation and in the anointing in their life, which is the representation of the spirit of God in their life. Listen, when you're around somebody and there's something about their life that you're going, gosh, every time I'm around you, I just want to be like Jesus more. Every time I'm around you, you're so encouraging or, 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 man, you always know what to pray or whatever it is. There's something about their life that you just know that there's something different. That is a representation of the anointing of the Spirit of God on that person's life because of their time spent with him. And my desire this morning is that it could be said of every person in this room and every person watching online that there is an anointing that rests upon your life. Where well, you're not merely repeating what somebody else has said. But the origination of it came because of your time with him. You see, the lamps of the foolish going out reveals a lack of care and attention. Aaron provided oil for the lamps morning and evening. He trimmed the lamps daily. It's a picture, again, of a consistent nature of relationship. And here's the thing. It's an intriguing thing to me that that, that an element of this parable is that all ten are referenced as virgins. A lot of the other things we've seen, you know, good servants and wicked servants, this parable is different. They are all referenced as virgins. They are all referenced as, as having a reference to purity, one who has kept themselves from immoral defilements and corruptions. But if you read the parable, how is it possible then to be referenced as yet pure, as pure and yet in the end be told to depart? Y'all, this parable hit me hard this week as I looked at it. I just went, man, I, I spent, some, some messages come easy, I guess, if you will, based off a of revelation that you have, and it doesn't take as long to prepare them. I wrestled over this one this week. It took me two days to write this message. And I studied, and I sought the Lord, and I just went, Father, I, I'm like, I don't understand. And it was like, because the deeper I dug in, I'm thinking, they're all 10 Our virgins, they're all supposed to be pure, kept from immoral defilement. How is it that five of them were told to depart? Because it was the same response. When he tells them at the end, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, right? That's speaking of intimacy. But he answered and said, just like he did and all the rest of them, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And I don't know about you guys, like that raises some questions in me because then I'm thinking, okay, are we missing something? Because I don't ever want to, I want to speak the truth to you, right? I don't ever want to lead anybody astray, but I had this thought. I said, Lord, what does that mean then? Why is it that we can be called, somebody could be a virgin in, in, outward, in, in outward purity or these different types of things and yet in the end be told to depart? And as I was studying, I came across something, and I'm just going to read it to you. There was a minister named George Whitfield, and he was a minister from the 1700s. And, and as I was studying and digging and reading and trying to gain understanding, uh, I came across actually a sermon that he had written on the same parable. I just want to read a little bit of it to you, uh, and, uh, and then I'm going to close out this message. And he begins by speaking to, of true believers. And it's got a little bit of old English type stuff, so just bear with me. But it says, Nor is there the least doubt of the state of true believers. For though they are despised and rejected of natural men, yet being born of God, they are heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. They have the earnest of the promised inheritance in their hearts and assured that a new and a living way is made open for them into the holy of holies. By the blood of Jesus Christ, into which an abundant entrance shall be administered to them on the great day of account. He said the only question is, is what will become of the almost Christian? One that is content to go as he thinks in the middle way to heaven. Without being profane on the one hand or as he falsely imagines righteous over much on the other. He says many are there in every congregation and consequently some here present of this stamp. And what is worst of all is it is more easy to convince the most notorious publicans and sinners of their being out of a state of salvation than any of these. Notwithstanding if Jesus Christ may be our judge... They shall certainly be rejected and disowned by him at the last day, as though they lived in open defiance of all his laws. It says, By the ten virgins we are to understand the professors of Christianity in general. All are called virgins because all are called to be saints. Whoever names the name of Christ is obliged by that profession to depart from all iniquity. But the pure and chaste in heart are the only persons that will be blessed as to see God. Says, as Christ was born of a virgin, so he can dwell in none but virgin souls made pure and holy by the cohabitation of the Holy Spirit. What says the apostle, all are not Israel that are of Israel. All are not Christians that are called after the name of Christ. No, says our Lord in the second verse, five of those virgins were wise, true believers, and five were foolish, formal hypocrites. That they were foolish, uh, they that were foolish took their lamps of an outward profession. They would go to church, say over several manuals of prayer, come perhaps into a field to hear a sermon, give it a collection, and receive the sacrament constantly, nay, oftener than once a month. But then here lay the mistake. They had no oil in their lamps, no principle of grace, no living faith in their hearts, without which, though we should give all of our goods to feed the poor and bodies to be burnt, it would profit us nothing. In short, they were exact, nay, superstitious bigots as to the form, but all the while they were strangers too, and in effect denied the power of godliness in their hearts. That's a sobering message. Second Timothy speaks. Second Timothy chapter three speaks of the conditions of the last days, and much of which is, I felt, pretty easily discerned. But the last verse in the description is something that can be easily overlooked. The thing about this particular parable today is that the five foolish virgins had a form of godliness. It's seen just simply in the name virgin, pure, one that has been kept from a moral defilement. But what did they lack? They lacked intimacy with him. In, in the scripture, right, 2 Timothy 3. Church, it's possible for us, and I'm not not putting this label on anyone. It's just the word that's in my heart. It is possible for us to have a form of godliness in our lives, but deny the power of the word to transform us from the inside out. Here's the thing. When, When I hear something in the word, am I convicted and I change? Or do I make excuses? When the tough time comes, Do I rely on myself and my abilities or do I trust in his word? When things are are not going the way that I want, do I follow his ways or do I follow my own? Thank you for listening to the Waymaker podcast. To simply connect or if this message ministered to you and you would like to support the ministry, you can simply go to waymakerchurch.org.